Good afternoon. Welcome to our time of worship. I invite you to stand as we join together in our call to worship. Rejoice with me, people of God. Rejoice with me, people of God. Rejoice with me, people of God.
You may be seated. Now I invite you to pray with me. God of our salvation, you are the source of wisdom and joy. Your love and mercies are not limited to one time or to one people. You continue to heal and to save, transcending the artificial boundaries and barriers we set. For such expansive love, it is our right, duty, and joy to offer you all our thanks and praise now and forever. Amen. It is my great joy to introduce my dear friend and colleague, Brian Combs, who will be preaching today. I met Brian four years ago when I began to do some work with the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church, and I recognized in him instantly a kindred spirit in many ways, but also I recognized in him as I watched him minister and I experienced his congregation. And here is someone who exemplifies the church of the future that I've been talking about to you today. And so I thought I would begin my uh, introduction of Brian by reading some words that he himself wrote about his own journey. When Brian began to feel a call to ministry or what might be a call to ministry, he did something that not very many people do. He says, for seven months on the Appalachian Trail, I simply listened for God's continued direction, becoming ever more convinced with each step north from Georgia to Maine that following Jesus could only be done full time. Finishing the through hike with a wiry beard, a fiery heart, <laughs> and vocational clarity, I knew a master of divinity was the next odyssey. Schooled in the theologizing of Howard Thurman, Karl Barth, and John Wesley, Candler included a high Christology of the cross and the empty tomb, while also emphasizing a very low Jesus, a very human Messiah. Emmanuel, in every way, God literally among us, Convicted to my core of incarnational ministry, I graduated from seminary and headed for the streets of downtown Atlanta, the shadowy alleys where the face of the divine loiters about. The job was social work behind a safe wooden desk, filling out vouchers for clothes, distributing bus coins, and securing enrollment in recovery centers comprised the first few days at the homeless agency. But it wasn't enough. The impediments of furniture and power didn't feel Christian, and I wanted a deeper connection. For the rest of the summer, a mission of, soli of solitary became the focus. Mornings were spent on the corner checking in with the aged out pimp. Lunch was waiting in line with the transients on the dirty sidewalk for the soup kitchen to open. A shoveled meal shared over a common plate. Afternoons were in the crack park across Cortland Avenue, a disturbing confluence of undercover cops hiding behind bushes, dying AIDS patients choosing habits over meds, and bloody syringes scattered in the grass. Evenings slid by on the stone wall with transvestite hookers and the threat of rape around the crooked bend. And although the immersion was foreign in familiarity, I sensed something akin something right about ministry in the chaos, something sustaining about being at home with the lepers of today, 
Not content, I needed another year. Grady Memorial has been called the roughest hospital in the United States, the epicenter of abject suffering, the only option for the uninsured, and they were hiring. The medical floors no one else wants, I requested, when the chaplain responsibilities were divided up for the next year. On call Friday night, the single mother and I held hands as the emergency room door scrapped shut, her dead child on the gurney from a gunshot wound to the head. In the bowels of the basement, I unzipped the waxy cover so a family could cry over their father's cold and blue body in the morgue. Over at the neonatal unit, I rocked steady a one-pound premature girl with the shakes of her mother's addiction. Up on the crisis stabilization unit of the psychiatric ward, the weekly spirituality group drew pictures of God coloring with muted tones of gray as the antidepressants flooded their veins. On the 13th floor, I strapped on another teal face mask before entering the dark room of a gay patient with more infectious diseases than were treatable. The more anguish, the more disenfranchisement, the more abandonment, the more I wanted to be there. And when it came appointment time, I wanted to serve a church just the same. But we don't have a congregation like that in this conference, the cabinet said. So over the past few years, I've made the best of a rural assignment. A rural assignment. <laughs> Serving where sent as an itinerant pastor and meaningful ministry has taken place. Holy transformation for a congregation assumed too forgotten for growth. Yet in the midst of preparing sermons, printing bulletins, and attending committee meetings, the poor still remain. The poor still ache for an affirming community, a fellowship of inclusion, a congregation of welcome, an open door of the United Methodist Church in Western North Carolina. The Haywood Street Congregation was born. And this church is the most wonderful congregation. Uh, you see everyone there, all sorts of people. And the, the love and the fellowship of the people is extraordinary. I, I could go on all day about what happens at Haywood Street Church. I encourage you to Google it later this evening, not now. <laughs> and uh, I want to uh, welcome again Pastor Brian Combs, who's going to bring to us the word of God. Thank you, Elaine, and thank you, Duke, for having the audacity to hire such a parabolic and subversive woman to lead your seminary and to lead our denomination. The wool tunic was replaced by the tweed sports coat, and the worn-out sandal was replaced by the shiny penny loafer. The call to conversion was replaced by the affirmation of indifference, and the hymn of lament was replaced by the praise song of glibness. And what was once a church for the sick has somehow become a country club for the healthy. Perhaps it all started with Naaman. He was the commander of the Syrian army, the kind of general who walked into a press conference chest first who led with the stars on his shoulders and the medals on his uniform. The kind of man that was cheered in the parade and saluted on the street. The kind of man who was bulletproof because of his reputation and his 12-gauge ego. But behind his secret service detail, 
and his military might, we know that he was not well. And so the question for us today is not rhetorical, it's literal and it's participatory. And that is, what does Naaman need healing from? What does Naaman need healing from? For those of you that have a pew Bible, I invite you to find 2 Kings 5 and follow along. As we hear the word of God, let us pray together the prayer for illumination. These are your words, O God. Humble us to speak their weight. Strengthen us to hear their truth. Unbind us to live their call through the power of your Holy Spirit. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Anad, Abana, and Papha, the rivers of Damascus, 
better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servant approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean. So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He, and he came and stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let two mule lords of the earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the truth is, if I'm honest, I've forgotten how to preach from a manuscript or to do a monologue. Instead, all I know how to do anymore is preach in community, and to do that, we have to be close together. And so I assume all of these chairs were put here for all of us. So I would invite all of you to come forward, and Daryl and Rob back there are going to help be our ushers. So welcome to the front. They're right up here, Daryl, if you want to sit with your family. <laughs> I got a seat left for you. All right, preacher. All right. <laughs> 
All right, well done. Let's make Duke Chapel intimate. So again, the question before us is, what does Naaman need healing from? What do you think, church? Pride, yes. <laughs> it's amazing to me how many of us are willing to die rather than say, I need help. Naaman, of course, he has every resource at his disposal. This is a man who has a car that comes to pick him up for all his appointments. He has a secretary that brings him lunch and his dry cleaning. He has everything that he could ever want. Every lever of power he can pull whenever, except healing. And to ask for help is perhaps the most Christian act. Naaman hasn't learned it yet. It's his pride that is keeping him from his healing. Yes, thank you. What else does Naaman need healing from? Leprosy, absolutely. We remember the 10 lepers story later on in the New Testament. To be a leper was the equivalent of having HIV or AIDS. Literally, you were banished to a colony. You could not come to the edge of town. You could not approach without telling someone you were there. And then at that point you had to say from a distance, I'm a leper, I'm dirty. Everything I have touched, everything I have looked at is deemed unclean. Do not approach me, but if you wouldn't mind, since I can't earn a living, can you throw me a coin so that I can eat? In fact, the law said that if you crossed the shadow of a leper, you were in fact contaminated. Naaman has leprosy. Perhaps one of the most beautiful pastoral acts in the whole New Testament is when Jesus lets the one leper who turns around touch him. Because we know that means Jesus took on the leprosy himself. Yes, perhaps this text is a precursor. Yes, Naaman has leprosy. He needs to be healed of that. What else? The need to control. Absolutely. You see what links Naaman goes to. To try to arrange a world that makes sense to him. I think I can pay my way out of this. I think I can flex my muscles out of this. I only run in the circles and the spheres of primary influence. Those are the people and the places that I can control most. And yet, we notice in the text, it's this anonymous slave girl, this POW, who says, I think I know something you don't. It's this prophet out in the desert in a lean-to with a thatch roof who says, I know about the living God. Well, none of that makes sense to Naaman. That's beyond the bounds of his control, and yet that's often where our healing lies. Yes. Who else? I'm sorry? It, yes, he was too proud, absolutely. You get the sense that Naaman lives in a castle, some monstrosity of a place, but... Word is starting to get out among his armies that he's not feeling so well. The dinner with the dignitaries, the invitations to the ball, all of that is starting to fall by the wayside. But yet he's there alone in his thousand-room house wondering, hmm, would I rather have my pride and die or would I rather live? What else? Inyong says doubt. Say more about that. Why do you think he needs to be healed of his doubt?
Yeah, that's a beautiful point. You get the sense that Naaman has tried every possible healing mechanism there is. If this guy is in charge of the army, charge of the whole military, then he has the very best physicians. He has the very best of everything, and you can be sure he has gone through the list and checked it all off and yet remains sick. You all know this. If you want to find God, go to the jail, go to the hospital room, go to under the bridge. It is the places of the most desperation that you will always find people who say, well, I've tried everything else. God is all that's left, and I cannot doubt in the one who created me now. Yes. It was someone else. Magical thing. Yes, say more. Yeah, magical thinking. This is such a beautiful point. The way I like to think about this text is Naaman's already pissed off. This is not going the way he's planned. And he shows up in the desert in his bright orange Hummer, and he's got a crowd of helicopters and a standing army. And he jumps out of his vehicle and says, now I want a healing that meets all the pomp and circumstance of my life. And Elijah doesn't even come out to greet the man. He just says, brother, head to the river. And oh, by the way, it's nowhere near as mighty or as beautiful as any of the rivers in Syria. We know that for those of us that have been to the Holy Land, the Jordan River is nothing to write home about. It's just this little trickle in the desert. <laughs> Naaman, go out there and wash. Yeah, he's consumed with this sense of magical thinking, this idea that this is going to be some great magician will come out and wave dust on him and then all will be made well. He's prejudiced. Yeah, he needs to be healed of his sense of class. Naaman's entitled. He runs in a world where kings only talk to generals and prophets only talk to servants. And over and over again through this short text you see Naaman is invited into salvation. He says, no, I'm sorry. There is no way I'm going to be made low who's someone, by someone who's beneath me. I would rather stay here and itch my skin than be told by a servant or a prophet what to do. Yes, it's an incredibly classist text. And of course, all of us need to be very wary of the poor people among us who are saying, you know, the truth's over there. Listen. Yeah. Anybody else? He's insecure. Yes, what do you think he's insecure about? Well, obviously he's insecure. Right. Yes, you get the sense that Naaman is perhaps the most insecure man in the Hebrew Bible. Again, he has every pretension possible, and yet he's terrified. He's terrified that life is going to be beyond his control, that he's not going to be in charge anymore, that he's just going to die a sick death like all the lepers in the leper colony. And friends, perhaps that is always the moment when we are most receptive to grace. When we're terrified. Terrified, yes. Naaman is incredibly insecure. Incredibly insecure. Anybody else? What does Naaman need healing from? Stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, what a great answer. You, you see the writer makes no mistake in naming all of this stuff in the text. And then Elijah says your healing is in the water with God. Two ingredients. That's it. How simple is it to follow God, to be a disciple, to find Jesus amongst all the places where no one else is looking, and yet so many of us are distracted. <laughs> distracted people by all that shimmers and blinks, all that is gold among us. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, Naaman wanted to complicate things by invoking magician's spirits or asking a priest to channel uh, some, some kind of hocus pocus. He wanted to walk around in circles backwards and ritualize some trapdoor theatrics. But the truth is God's healing simply requires what is always most dismissible. Just get in the muddy water. Naaman wants to stay in his chariot of control, hiding his pride behind armored plates and sharpened swords. But God's healing requires us to get on our knees, to bathe in front of our subordinates, and to be made ordinary in the name of humility. Naaman wants to pay his way. He assumes that health care coverage only works if the gold and silver deductible is met. Medical coverage, of course, is not a commodity traded on the marketplace. You see, God's healing only requires receiving. It is a costly grace that never comes with a bill of sale. But the thing Naaman needs healing from most is the malignant disease of suffering alone. It's the infirmity of invincibility, the misguided belief that I can only lead with my beauty and never show my brokenness. That God is only interested in the well-healed and the well-adjusted. Despite the truth that most of us are only willing to show up with our Sunday best on. And never let the air of fellowship or the light of liturgy touch our wounds. Christianity is a religion of lost sheep bleeding out for a shepherd of ill patients showing up to check into the doctor, of sinners desperately in search of a savior. On that Easter day, we decided to open the windows of the sanctuary. And during the prayers of the people, these loud slurs erupted from the other side of the stained glass window. It began as a verbal altercation and quickly led into a physical fight. Fists were bludgeoning faces and wrestling bodies were bloodying the concrete. A mob scene ensued to provoke the rage. A group of congregants ran out to intervene and you could hear the police sirens racing ever closer and closer. Well, by that time I had stopped looking at what was printed in the bulletin. <laughs> and I stood there facing the congregation and the two entryway doors in the back. Now I could see what no one else could see. And that was that the moving chaos had just stopped squarely in front of me and the two fighters were getting ready to barge in, which they did. One of them collapsed in the corner. The other one named John 
he raised his hands and he came stumbling down the center aisle. And when he got to the chancel where I was standing, he collapsed in my arms in a pile of weeping and moaning. You see, John had spent nearly a decade on the streets, living in and out of tents. And that day he had been rejected for public housing. And so he had gone to the package shop to get a drink instead of the pharmacy to fill his script. And in his worst moment of addiction and psychosis and brutality of all the places he would show up, he comes to the church. If it's true, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, that we're only as sick as our secrets, concealing behind all of our paraphernalia of privilege, then church has to be the place of the great reveal where we bring all of our dirty thoughts and our profane desires, our possessed minds and our hemorrhaging bodies and our private leprosies, and we haul all of them up here to this altar and say, I believe in the God who will see it and touch it and heal it. In the name of the divine physician we pray, amen.
You may be seated. Brian, thank you for your word to us. We have been blessed. And now let us pray together to the Lord. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For your church, its leaders, and its people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord For those enslaved by political, military, or social oppression, let us pray to the Lord. For those suffering from violence and illnesses we can prevent, let us pray to the Lord. Lord For those at risk from famine, drought, and natural disasters, let us pray to the Lord. For those who are lost or lonely, let us pray to the Lord. For your healing presence in sickness and in brokenness, let us pray to the Lord. For our enemies and those who wish us harm, and for all whom we have injured or offended, let us pray to the Lord. For those we love, who teach us to love you more fully, let us pray to the Lord. For ourselves, for the forgiveness of our sins, and for the grace of the Holy Spirit to amend our lives, let us pray to the Lord. For all who have died in the faith of Christ, that with all the saints they may have rest in that place where there is no pain or grief, but life eternal, let us pray to the Lord. Help save, comfort, and defend us, O God, by your grace, 
in the communion of the Holy Spirit and of all the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another to the living God through Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Hear the good news, we're only as sick as our secrets and our private leprosies, but church is the place of the great reveal. So bring it all up to the altar in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.